Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was learning to drive a car, you know, uh, one of the things we did was went out into a big wide open parking lot where you could make all the mistakes you want and you wouldn't hurt anybody. Well, in a way, that's what I think a college campus outside the classroom should be. It's a place where we all have to be um, a little more forgiving of other people. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, um, Dr. Lyle Asher, who is a professor of English at Lewis and Clark College in, in uh, Oregon. And I believe your specialty is in Renaissance literature, like Shakespeare and stuff like that. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And how, what, what got you into that? Um, just out of curiosity. I mean, I feel like a lot of like people that want to do journalism lean towards the beat guys, like, uh, you know, uh, or maybe Hemingway back in the day and then some of the beat writers and a lot of people that really enjoy classic literature go either towards the Greeks or towards Renaissance literature. What, what got you into it? Well, as with so many things, this was just a uh, happenstance. I happened to go into one of my advisor's office when I got my first semester in grad school and uh, I had classes picked out and he says, here are the classes you want to take, not these. <laughs> and uh, so he... He signed me up for um, a Renaissance course, uh, and that really sort of uh, set me off on um, on this path. Um, everybody regrets what they ended up with. Um, I think most everybody, strangely enough, ends up studying things they uh, grow to hate. It didn't happen to me, and Shakespeare in particular. Although I didn't, I, I wasn't writing on Shakespeare for my dissertation. But I was thrown into a job at University of Oregon, and, and my primary responsibility was teaching Shakespeare. So that was really the the place where I learned Shakespeare. There's nothing like the threat of a uh, an hour and a half lecture the next day to get you working uh, well into the night. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. <laughs> if you do that three three years for three years, you end up uh, knowing the subject pretty well. I, f I don't feel like I've run into a whole lot of people who uh, specialize in Renaissance era literature that regret it. I mean, it's there's such a great body of work, and it, so much meaningful stuff happened in in England and in France, a lot of places, right? But particularly in those two places, that it's kind of hard to to not like what's going on there. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's like everything else, you know. Uh, when you start opening this door, and uh, you can open the door from many different directions, uh, 
it turns out to be a maze, but uh, but it's a maze of of increasing interest and complexity and nuance. And then you get to Shakespeare, and uh, it's endless because, uh, as I always tell my students, Shakespeare is like acid; nothing can contain him. <laughs> uh, it's the most uh, remarkable um, feature of our culture that I know of, not because <clears throat> um, I think of all the things that people generally say about Shakespeare. Um, but largely because um, he teaches you things that um, and acquaints you with things that uh, you would never have come up with on your own, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself that I never have would have come up with. And the other thing about it is it's just simply endless. I feel like I'm just now at the tip of the iceberg and uh, I won't have time, unfortunately, to go much deeper, but uh, that's a great uh, sort of a thrilling uh, prospect when you realize there will not be an end to this. Yeah, I mean that's uh, it, it's funny. I, I really enjoyed the uh, animated series Futurama, which they're they're coming back with it now. And there was a there was an episode where Farnsworth, who's the scientist, um, discovers the theory of everything, and then he's like super depressed because he's like, "Well, there's nothing left for me to do." And then he finds yeah. that there's quite a bit more to be done. Right? I don't think that yeah. uh, uh, if you're a scientist, um, whether it's a social scientist or or you know, physics or math, you're, you're never going to run out of things to do. <laughs> it's, it's, that's the, the, the thing. And I, my favorite part about classical literature, whether it's the Greeks, uh, and the, and the philosophy from then, or it's, you know, uh, the discussions of society and Renaissance or the, the common law stuff and, and rights of man that came out of, of that period. The thing that I really enjoy about it is that it, it gives us one, it gives us some perspective, like our problems now aren't unique. These problems have been happening to people in different cultures and different times throughout human history. But it also, yes. it also reminds us that we have a tendency to forget lessons we've learned and unsolve problems because we forgot why we solved them in the first place, right? That's exactly right. And I think it's, uh, you know, if you look back at, <clears throat> uh, particularly at the Stoics, but if you look back at any of the, the ancient Greek writers, you'll see that all these social issues that we that we juggle now have answers already right like we're wasting yes. and that the it is <laughs> it's irritating to me that we continue uh uh to unsolve and then have to resolve these problems but worse like how much more could we be progressing if you know as a as a culture as a society if we like okay that problem solved now what can we do yeah well you know, understanding the context of why particular uh, laws came about, why particular rights mm. were established, for example, in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. Um, one thing you begin to get an appreciation for, and I think it's really come to me later in life, the older I get, you hear this a lot, the older I get, the more I understand uh, the genius of uh, the founding fathers mm -hmm the genius of the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, um, in particular with the question of, of free speech, especially since that is a, you know, that's a very unusual thing to grant people. Uh, and, and of course, if you know anything about history, uh, you realize just what a rarity it is. Yeah. Um, this was not the obvious choice. And uh, when we hear arguments about it today, uh, very often you're, you find yourself arguing with, with people who have no idea of the downsides of what they are, what they're talking about mm -hmm. and what they're proposing. 
Uh, I mean, one one thing in particular, I've, I I gave a talk a couple of years ago <clears throat> on this question of of free speech, and it gets us really into the problem of of history. You know, when you when you're on one side or another in a particular issue, let's take gay marriage for example. Mm -hmm. You always ask the question: Am I on the wrong side of history or the right side of history? As it's maybe kind of a silly formulation, but I think what we're, we have in mind is 20 years from now, will I be considered um, someone who was on in the wrong because the sort of the zeitgeist has changed? Right. Um, it's very difficult to know at any given moment where you are, right? There's always a chance that you will be you will be the slave owners of, of <laughs> the equivalent of the moral equivalent of slave owners in the 18th century. So it's very difficult to know for sure. And of course you can't, but the one test, I think the one test is if you ever find yourself trying to stop another person from speaking, that is a flag that tells you you are on the wrong side, right? Because if you look back, especially in the history of the United States, history of the civil rights movement, um, and the, all the movements that have to do with the expansion of freedom, and um, the expansion of the rights of human beings, the people who have almost always inevitably been on the wrong side were the people who wanted other people to shut up and stop talking. Right. Yeah. It's the one thing that unites, for example, you know, the, the Stalinist, Leninist left uh, with uh, Mussolini and Hitler. Right. They were all on the same page on many things. And one of the things they were really on the same page on was the, to stop the presses. Sure. Stop free speech. And there's a reason for that, right? Because sunlight's the best disinfectant, right? Uh, if, you, if you're operating from a premise, whatever it happens to be, uh, <clears throat> there's, there's, a, there's only two ways, in my opinion, to defend it. One is with good ideas that support it, right? And, yes. the, and with that comes the understanding that there may come better ideas, right? And you have to change your position. And the other side is to deny that, which ultimately leads to and requires authoritarianism. That's right. Yes. And, yeah. you know, Frederick Douglass, uh, I think it was 1860, 1861. Mm. He wrote a great document called a plea for a free mm. speech. And he made this point. He said, look, if we'd had free speech, uh, slavery would have been ended by now. Um, he says it's the great renovator of democracy. Mm -hmm. And the title of the essay I or the talk I gave was trust tyrants, trust tyrants. And the reason I called it that was because of Frederick Douglass. Douglass said, all you have to do to know about the power of free speech is to notice what tyrants first want to get rid of. <laughs> and it's that. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll happily be on the side of, of Frederick Douglass, of Martin Luther King, um, Thurgood Marshall, for example, mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall, in a, uh, it's, it's a case that a lot of people don't know about 1972, um, it's called Mandel versus uh, Klein Deist or something like that. And uh, he, he was in the dissenting opinion. Uh, it was a question about whether a Belgian scholar by the name of Mandel could come to the United States and give a talk. This mm -hmm. man was a uh, avowed Marxist and the United States was preventing him from coming. And Thurgood Marshall said something very important. He said, the right to speak and the right to hear 
are two sides of the same coin. His arguments didn't carry sway in that particular case, but uh, they've always, uh, uh, I think, stood the test of time very well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, th- there's been quite a few pretty poignant statements made about freedom of speech by by people. I mean, I for for a very long time, but some some of the more um, one that I particularly enjoy is uh, George Washington says, "If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent uh, we may be led like sheep to the slaughter." Um, yes. And pretty much every. <clears throat> Every first half of the 20th century president we had had something to say about this issue because I don't, I don't know if they could feel it coming. You know, it's, it's, very, it's hard to tell. So Teddy Roosevelt spoke quite a bit about it, about the dangers of suppression of speech and uh, blind support of a president instead of support of the Constitution. Um, Harry Truman, in the, in, the, in the speech he gave about internal security, about the military-industrial complex and stuff like that before he left office, spoke about it quite a bit. What? So we see these great thought leaders bring this up a lot, and we still seem to find society leans toward, you know, uh, uh, allowing for the suppression of speech when they don't agree with it. What? Why do you yeah. do you think that's a function of tribalism, or what? What do you think that is? Well, it seems like it's a natural instinct for a lot of people Mm. um and it's coming it's packaged in new forms that's one of the problems you don't quite recognize it uh the way it's happening now Mm. um for example one of the sort of slickest and slyest techniques that we find now and this sort of gets us into you know the subject of uh the the video uh why colleges are becoming cults Mm. has to do with I don't know if you saw Peter's, um, I think it has over a million views at this point, his encounter with the uh, social work group at PSU. I don't know if you've seen that, right? Sure have. Well, that's a great indication. So people in your audience, you know, want to watch this in real time, go see that video. And one of the things you notice is that those um, Peter's interlocutors uh, now use, and this is very familiar language, the language of care and concern and love and um and protection we're not used to dealing with that when we think about free speech very often we're used to dealing thinking about people who have truncheons boots Mm. they come knocking down your door so we're caught off guard when we hear people talking about love and concern and care and what they say throughout that encounter with peter is that uh don't you know in fact i think the first thing they say is don't you know you're harming people? Yeah, you're yeah. harming people right. by answering a question. So I think it's time that uh, everybody realize what this is. I'm not saying it's necessarily intentional on these people's part. I will say, however, the effect of it is is to shut people up. Mm. Orwell, who was ahead of everybody on this, noticed this. He said, um, it's one thing when you say, thou shalt not. There are all sorts of eccentricity that that this can nevertheless allow for but when you tell somebody in the name of love in the name of reality in the name of truth and justice uh you need you shouldn't say these things right then that becomes a kind of internal censor <laughs> so we can't fall prey to this uh and, and the other thing you notice in that particular video 
is the speed with which the attitudes, I think many of them are choreographed, the attitudes of love and concern turn on a dime to real viciousness, flipping somebody off. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and basically claiming that they're um, hurting other people and that gives me the right to, to shut you down and insult you. Sure. But that, that's kind of been the game plan for for any kind of utopian ideology, right? Like Marxism, for yeah. example, um, it always comes bearing gifts. Um, That's right. And, and the problem, and this is, this is something that, I mean, I would, I, I love hearing Bogosian talk about this because he's an actual philosopher and he just can, can articulate it so well, but it's essentially confusion uh, amongst the population between is and ought, right? So a lot of people have come to believe that they the world ought to be this way and that we should live as if it were, but that's not realistic, right? The, the world is what it is and you should yes. deal with reality. Um, so the Peter you're referring to obviously is Peter Bogosian. Um, he, he introduced us. One of his primary focuses the past couple of years has been about, and this is something I would, I wanted to talk to you about is, is having difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, there's, it seems to be something that we've lost the ability to do in a lot of ways. And it seems that we've lost any appetite at all for discomfort. Um, what have you seen in that regard in your role as a professor? Um, it depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to students, um, I find it very easy to have conversations, especially one-on-one. -on -one. That is, if they're in my office um, and we're just chatting, um, there seems to be no limit we can have discussions just about anything. When you put students or anybody for that matter in a group, it becomes a little more difficult because they're worried about what they say. Right. They're worried about whether they're reacting properly to what I may say. Mm -hmm. But overall, and this may again be a function of um, sort of self-selection, that is it may be the students I encounter know what they're getting or what to expect. And so they come to my classes and honestly uh, on that score, it's been, uh, it's been great working at Lewis and Clark for the students. Um, I wish I could say the same thing about uh, all of my colleagues. I don't, nothing personal here, but I see an increasing intolerance for uh, opinions that don't sort with uh, the sort of, current opinion of academic culture. Mm. So that, for example, uh, if one were to uh, just take the biggest hot button issue of all, if one were to question, uh, let's say, the sexual binary, mm. that is, or I should say, if you said in a discussion, I believe that sex is binary. Um, it's not just that you have people disagreeing with you. They will say that you are threatening them. Mm. And they're threatening, you're threatening them because they say, uh, my identity is bound up in there not being a sexual binary, right? right? So very quickly, this becomes uh, a claim that you're extinguishing their identity. But to that, I'd say, if I deny the existence of God, which I've done before, mm. what about those people whose identities are bound up with the idea that they are 
the children of the Christian God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, if you if you're right. if your entire identity belief system hangs in the balance of others, you know, opinions, that's that seems to be quite a bit more problematic than their opinion in general. That's right. And I would say, okay, if you want to go down that road, then we're going to have to go down the road fully. Mm. That means we're going to have to exclude all statements that would possibly interfere with someone's version of their identity. Mm. Right. Um, and this is a, you know, it's a real problem. What we know is that when you think about gay marriage, which I was for before Hillary Clinton was, because <laughs> I was convinced of Andrew Sullivan's uh, essay back in mm -hmm. the 90s, yep. arguing for it on libertarian principles, yep. right? Um, but but that was an argument that was made. Maybe there was some shaming involved, but I remember that being a consistent argument that was, and you know, when you first hear it, when if somebody had said this, said this back in the 60s, people would have said, you're crazy, although people did say it, right? And mm -hmm. people said, oh, you're nuts. This is insane. Sure. And so it takes time. But one thing they didn't do um, was avoid consensus. Sure, yeah. That is, there was nothing in Andrew Sullivan's arguments which suggested that people were evil if they opposed him. Hmm. He was making arguments. And the minute you move from uh, saying, this is something I think we should do and here's why, to saying, this is something we have to do and if you disagree with me, you are... Uh, you don't have access to the truth that I do. Right. Then that's when the game is really over. And that's what I think we're seeing now. We've lost the realization or the understanding that building a consensus is getting everybody on board with arguments, not with threats. Correct. Yeah. And it's, it's also about finding uh, the greatest common factor in that argument. Right. So we may disagree on some of the details, but there is some point up upstream where we all kind of agree on something and we should build from that proposition. And that, that's kind of what we're trying to do with this show. I mean, we, so it's our belief here at Citizen that despite all the corruption and ignorance and uh, the malice and incompetence that we see in institutions and government, whether it's, you know, it, I, I, I love hand on the razor. There's no need to necessarily imply malice if incompetence will suffice. And, uh, there's a lot of it, but I, I do believe that it is entirely on us, the people, to repair and rebuild what's been broken. And I want people to take responsibility for the world they live in instead of just like there's enough social media accounts bitching about the state of the country. There's enough people who are disenfranchised and disillusioned with the way their government's working who are tuned out of the, of the system now. But, you know, it, my premise is that if you if you make yourself better become a better citizen and inspire those around you to do the same that is how you reach the kind of consensus in attitude and effort that it requires to perform all of these other tasks right to have these yes. conversations and build you know uh, around the, the the principles that that you know our founders intended us to have yes i think that's right so this is a multi part question, I guess. So uh, from your experience, I, w I wonder your thoughts on this, because you, you do a lot of work in this area. Um, <clears throat> the first part is, and from your perspective, what steps can older generations, people like you who are now professors, or uh, I work in media managers, mentors, uh, parents, how, what, what can we do 
from our position to refocus ourselves and our youth on the principles that made this country great. And when I say the principles that made this country great, I don't necessarily just mean the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but I mean the first principles, the rights of man, all the stuff that English common law, the, the French democratic ideals, everything that led up to where we are today. Well, that takes us right to the core issue, which is the question of education. Unfortunately, the public education system has been abandoning the idea of, you know, content knowledge. That is the academic subjects of, say, history. And they've been abandoning it for, you know, a long time. Not every school, not every school to the same extent. But uh, if you don't have a understanding of what the country was built on and the context in which it was built. That's the crucial thing. People take everything for granted because they assume it was always this way. They don't know, for example, that when Lincoln was president and he was trying to preserve the union, mm. he was really trying to preserve the last democracy in the world. All right. Yep. I mean, it was then the Napoleonic Revolution was going on then too, right, around the same time. So things were getting pretty dicey over there. Well, we'd seen the French Revolution. Mm. It's, it's really remarkable that, you know, 13 years after uh, the American Revolution began, we had the French Revolution, mm. both moving in very, very different directions. Mm. I mean, I've told my students sometimes, look, if you want an education in history, there are two revolutions you should study. The first one being the French Revolution in 1789 mm. and the Russian Revolution in 1917. Mm -hmm. And if you started there, um, you do pretty well for grounding yourself in an understanding of just how difficult it is to have a revolution that begins in freedom that doesn't end in mass murder, for one thing. Mm -hmm. And so you then, with that in mind, you go back to the... Uh, American Revolution, and you realize just how unusual it was, how fortunate we were. And of course, it required renovation. This is what Lincoln was doing. Lincoln really set us on the path of getting back to the fundamental principles that were beyond, I think, even the founding fathers to have enacted. He was getting uh, not just to the letter, but to the spirit of uh, the Declaration like the idea it was written in the constitution like the idea that liberty only exists if it exists for everybody yes Which that's I, right i think that is a fundamental thing that a lot of the a lot of the founders used termolo terminology like that used phrases like that but Yes. Uh, perhaps. I mean, Thomas Jefferson's on record saying slavery was an abomination, which is kind of an odd thing for people. It's hard to conceptualize that as a human being in in 2022 because we understand the the evils of slavery we read the things that Thomas Jefferson wrote and understand that he was a brilliant and empathetic man that really understood freedom, but still was one of the primary slave owners of his time. Right. So that's a yes. difficult thing to understand. I mean, the, I, I've always felt that his, his position was probably that he knew he couldn't do anything about it in his time, but he wanted to build a weapon for lack of a better phrase that people in the future could use to defeat this shit. That, that's kind of how yes. I've always thought about that. And yeah. if, you, if you think about the founders in that way, 
they built quite a few weapons and it wasn't just about slavery, right? It was about, yes. it was about not sacrificing liberty for security, for example, things like that, that, that are yeah. foundational to the, 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 the country, but weren't, weren't necessarily, I guess, weren't necessarily feasible at the time, or maybe they were, and they just were, weren't prepared to do it. Like the aliens and seditions act, for example, was a huge mess. Uh, definitely a, not, not nearly as big a stand as slavery on the country, but that was a pretty bad move uh, yes. by, by Adams and, and, you know, multiple things after that. That we that yes. we that we kind of screwed up, but I, I guess from the perspective of just to recap y- your statements there, people that have now solidified themselves in our in American society um, need to look back and see how we got here. Is what you're saying, right? So yeah. uh, that I like that um, I like that trinity of the Russian. French and, and American revolutions and how two of them, while, while they all, I guess, kind of achieved their purpose, two of them were very inefficient with regard to human life. And one of them was yes. not. Yeah. Uh, and that's, a, that's an important thing to understand. Right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. Look, folks, it's the deal you've all heard about. It's the deal... We love with the company we love, ghostbed.com forward slash drinker bros. We've been with those guys, man, four or five years now. It's hard to, hard to remember. All these days keep running together. Uh, but it's, you know, one of our favorite companies, um, aside from just having the best mattresses that, that I've ever personally used and great pillows, great sheets, all their, uh, uh, accessories are so good, high quality stuff. Uh, the customer service is amazing. That's how you know you're really dealing with a great company. Aside from all that, they also support the people that support us, you know, the first responders, the military, stuff like that. And they always end up giving us these amazing deals as well. So <clears throat> right now you can get 40% off a bundle when you get a mattress and an adjustable base and then anything else you add to that order for everything else. 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Uh, you're going to get a mattress for like 35 bucks a month. Uh, uh, zero down, 0% financing plan uh, for those who are eligible. Uh, and it goes out to 60 months. That's five years. You know, you can build yourself a bedroom suite, knock that price way down. Uh, so go check it out. We love these guys. And by, you know, supporting them, you're really supporting us. They, they know that you guys... Uh, love the products. They love all the reviews you send. So if you're out there and you've got one, make sure you go uh, put in a review. Let them know that you appreciate what they've done this, for this community and you know all, all the uh, all the great deals they've given us and the great products over the years. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. It's, it's 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 such a it's such a rare thing. You look back at and again, I I'm not an American historian, but. Uh, sort of later in life in the last decade, I've been reading more and more because uh, something is at stake here mm. in this period in, in time in American history. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing. That is, you know, sometimes you can um, worry about living in interesting times, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but there is something that concentrates the mind on how you got to where you are 
your own history, not only history of the United States, but the history of the world, when you feel it unraveling. Now, of course, there are plenty of times in American history in the last century where people have also felt this, World War I, World War II. World War II was not a guaranteed victory by the West. In fact, we almost lost it many, many times. So you have to remember that too. There have been other, other bad times, other times where you felt like the nation was at risk. But I think um, going back and trying to understand the full context of, uh, of what people like Jefferson were up against. Here's, here's something I've said to my students, not necessarily in class, although I, I, I could easily, just hasn't come up. But I have asked them the following question in class. I haven't related it to Jefferson. In fact, I, I did this funny little experiment and I do it from time to time when, the, when it's occasioned by something we're discussing. I say, how many of you, let's take a, just a thought experiment. If you had a button and if you push this button and you could basically erase uh, contact with the so-called new world by the Europeans, that is, if you could just erase that moment in history forever so that there was no first contact, mm -hmm. would you do it? But and then I say, now, remember, the minute you press that button, you may disappear or be dispersed into some strange DNA that's spread out all across uh, Europe. You wouldn't be in the new world. You wouldn't right. be in the United States, for sure. <laughs> uh, so keep that in mind. Would you press it? And generally speaking, I think I get about a third of the students, sometimes a quarter of the students raising their hand. And in one class, I said, okay, well, I've got a button for you. And it's the card of a emeritus professor, friend of mine, who has actually done a lot of work in Indian lands in the Pacific Northwest in particular, and who's done a lot of legal work helping tribes get back land that they were swindled out of. And I said, I can put you in touch with him and he can tell you to whom you should give your property. <laughs> <laughs> and I say this not to humiliate them, but to acquaint them with just how easy it is to voice principles and yet live in a completely different manner. So when I try to you know, grasp what Jefferson was doing, and by the way, you know, as you know, he was made fun of at the time by his mm. contemporaries. Yep. I've never heard so much. A man talks so much about liberty and practice so little of <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yep. so, so that was there. But it's, so if you're going to try to understand him, try to be as generous as one can, and maybe one doesn't want to be generous, but I, I feel some generosity because, you know, they, unlike many people, his principles were better than he was. Sometimes people's principles are worse than they are. Right. Jefferson was somebody whose principles outlived him because they were better than he, the man was. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I think it helps for students to realize just how many contradictions will be seen in their lives a hundred years hence. They'll say, look at these people, they're constantly talking about how much they care about uh, living in stolen land, but I've yet to see a single one of them give an acre of it back. Right, yeah, yeah. Isn't that curious? Well, it reminds, so, that, that question seems to be very similar to if you ask someone if they regret the trials and tribulations that they've gone through personally, right? Most, yeah. most people would say no, that it made them who they are, right? I don't understand why that same uh, uh, thinking isn't applied towards, you know, just everything that's foundational to society in general, whether it's 
you know, from the Greeks all the way to present. Um, <clears throat> they don't really, and the, the, the nuanced part about that is that the person's not going to suggest that the trials were easy or pleasant or that the bad behavior leveraged either by them or against them was good or proper, but they will recognize that the contribution was meaningful and it made them who they are. And I think, yes. um, the, the pain and guilt that modern people feel for some of the stupid shit that America has done as a country over the years is appropriate, but it's like it, it you, it, the way you use that is really important, right? So if you get angry, I, I was a soldier in the 82nd Airborne. Mm. You, rage is a very effective tool. If you can inhale rage and exhale purpose, you can get some things done, right? Yes. Uh, in the same way, if you can inhale failure and, and pain and loss and exhale purpose and empathy, like if we turn that into actual empathy and not just uh, uh, virtue signaling, I guess, then we start to make real progress. And I, and I wonder why, I mean, one is clearly easier than the other. There's no question. And you just outline that when you turn that, that, uh, I guess, ephemeral argument into something more corporeal where just, there's like actual stakes now, you know what I mean? You have to surrender something to achieve this goal that you're apparently so in favor of. Now, what are you going to do? Right? So clearly it's easier to say things than it is to do them. How do we, there, and it seems to be a lot of people get upset these days that there's so much talk about, you know, social issues and all this stuff. I don't really get upset about that. I'm glad people are thinking about it, but yeah. absent guidance, right? I mean, I, I don't want to call these people sophomore or anything, but absent guidance and real world experience, that stuff can go awry really quickly. So I think it is incumbent upon thought leaders to challenge people regardless of what the consequences might be. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago and they were asking this question, you know, um, what about people who are in jobs and uh, announcing a particular opinion will put that job in jeopardy? You know, I can't really give them advice because I'm, I'm relatively protected, although that protection, protection of tenure is a increasingly tenuous thing. Mm. So I do think, however, that if the people who the most you're going to suffer is a lot of pushback on Twitter or uh, losing some friends, um, that sort of thing, then you have a real obligation to speak up for the people who aren't in the position to to speak their minds. Plenty of people in corporations who don't feel like they can talk, who've been intimidated into silence. And this is a real intimidation mm -hmm. because they're not just losing uh, friends, they're losing livelihoods. Right. So that has to be taken seriously. It just means there's more pressure on people who can speak up without the immediate or imminent threat of job loss. They really have to do it. I just don't have, frankly, I just don't have patience for people whose biggest worry is that um, other people will be offended. Now, I don't, one doesn't want to go around offending people. One mm. wants to be diplomatic as possible. But in the end, you know, you have one life. I always wonder sometimes, you know, do people imagine that they're going to have, you know, dozens and dozens of lives to live? You've got one tiny little mica thin moment, as far as we know. And it would seem a shame to waste that um, by keeping your mouth shut about things that are important and uh, things that could potentially help solve the problems that you talked about, the social issues that mm -hmm. we're all concerned about. Sure, yeah. So that, I guess that leads into the second part of this question. Uh, 
if you're not, so most people in their lives aren't going to be in a leadership position at any point, unless I guess parenthood for a lot of people will be one, but most people aren't going to be a manager at work. They're not going to be in the military. They're not going to work in politics. They're not going to work in some kind of government institution. The vast majority of people will just work ordinary jobs and go through their lives and their base of influence will be their family and then the people that they interact with on a regular basis. So uh, in addition to what you just said, which is, <coughs> excuse me, I think is very important for people to be, uh, to reject the divisiveness and have like strong argument based conversations with each other from the lowest possible level, because that does empower people that are actually in managerial positions, whether it's government or otherwise to be like, yeah, this isn't, normal people are talking about this and we don't have to go crazy and, and start throwing rocks at each other. This is a decent conversation to have. We can come to some kind of consensus other than that part, which I think is really important. What do you think the ordinary person can do uh, to, 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 I guess, improve this situation that we're in right now? Um, well, let's go back to something you mentioned earlier about conversations, how to have them. I'm not an expert on it. I haven't thought a lot about it in the way Peter, I think, has in a kind of codified way. Mm -hmm. I do think one thing that um, helps, and I haven't always been good at this, maybe I'm not now, but as a young person in college, I remember having very heated arguments. I'm not sure this happens at all now. Maybe it does. But very heated arguments about abortion, about affirmative action on mm -hmm. my freshman hall. Abortion in particular. This is at Vanderbilt, right? Which is kind of in the South, which is. Yeah. You know, it's, that's a, that's a, my, could be a, even though it's a, a an ex exceptional educational university, still could be a, a problematic place to have that conversation back in whenever you went there. Yeah. So this was in the 70s. Mm. And um, one thing that was great about it, look, you said earlier, how much we learn from even bad experiences, mm -hmm. you know, I look back on a number of things, um, two things in particular. One was the conversations I had about, you know, abortion, the existence of God and that sort of thing. And I remember everybody feels this, everybody experiences this, that point at which you are interested in winning, mm. having the best argument, uh, to the exclusion of almost everything else. I think it's, we're wired this way. And it's taken me a long time to learn, not that I always practice this, but I can give myself this advice as well as anybody else. If you can try to imagine what it would be like to believe the things that your opponent says, that is, if you said, if I uttered that sentence, what, what I probably be believing, mm. right? In other words, this is, I guess there's a name for it. It's called steel manning rather than right. straw manning. Yep. Anybody can pick the worst interpretation of a sentence or an argument and, and, and run that one into the ground. But if you can pick the best interpretation of an argument, in fact, even improve the argument for the person you're, now that takes a real, a real mm -hmm. soul, but improve the argument of the person you're talking to, um, that I think goes a long way towards not only helping them, but helping you understand where the differences actually, actually lie. Mm. 
It's like uh, I always equate it. I say the exact same thing, and I equate it to somebody <clears throat> in a math class that the teacher will ask you to show your work, not to give you superfluous, unnecessary work to do, but so they can look and see where you made a mistake, right? So having yes. those conversations out loud. Yes. Uh, it, I, I'm not sure in public forums is always the best. Peter's doing a really good job of it now because he's doing a really good job of moderating the whole thing, but there can be pressures that affect people inside of that. And, but he's doing some research on that too. So I guess it helps him, but having yeah. one-on-one conversations with people like that, recording them and then putting them out there, uh, yes. I think is, is a pretty important thing. And it reminds, when I was in school, uh, in, in middle and high school, we had Lincoln Douglas debates, which is, you know, I think something that probably doesn't exist anymore. It's probably too, it's probably too touchy now to do that, but essentially sure. in a Lincoln, well, the way that one of my professors, <clears throat> excuse me, or one of my uh, history teachers, Mr. Greer, uh, I think I was in eighth grade. We had Lincoln Douglas debates and he would make us, he would ask everybody their opinion on the subject and whatever your opinion was, he assigned you the opposite thing to debate from, right? So it, yeah. it, it forces you to recognize and apply the principle of charity. To, to the other person's argument, which means, and I, and I say this all the time, if you don't understand the other person's argument, you don't understand yours. That's right. That, and that's something that everybody can do because yes. as polarized as everything is, I guess the one benefit of it is that those who haven't been entirely disillusioned are now engaged in the process. And that's an opportunity, right? That's that we should, yeah, yeah. we should see that as an opportunity not to manipulate people, but to, reteach them how to think and not what to think right yes like if you if you if if somebody is trying to teach you a specific argument they're teaching you what to think if they're trying to teach you the opposite then they're teaching you how to think which is a much more appropriate thing to do yes that's right the um something you said uh, struck a chord um again going back to this idea that we learn from difficult situations, potentially volatile situations. Mm. The other thing that happened on that freshman hall, and it's funny, the older I get, the more I go back to that. Mm. These early core, uh, their core memories. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the great things about being on this particular hall that I was on is there were some football players on there on the hall, uh, big SEC football players. This is back when Vanderbilt was good at football. That's, well, they were never good, but it's they were better, yeah. playing with the big boys. They yeah, were yeah. playing with Alabama. It yep. was a good occasion to drink a lot in the stands because you get creamed by Alabama <laughs> 72 to 3. Yeah, you know, that's true, so. yeah. But there was a, a guy who lived next door to me, uh, a great guy who was 380 pounds. He was African-American. Mm. And uh, so one of the things that the other kids on the hall – now, again, he was a football player. We didn't see a lot of him because he was constantly at practice. Mm -hmm. But I had we sort of when we got to the hall. A lot of us from all over the United States bonded. At least four or five of us did at the end of the hall where I was on Richard Pryor albums. Mm, yep. Right. And so I'd heard it. I'd been listening to them because of a friend of mine and another guy knew about them. So we got these Richard Pryor albums and started listening to them with the door open. Well, as you know, um, a lot of in words from around <laughs> there, right? Yep. So and there were, you know, three or four black guys on the hall. And uh, so we were, you know, a little, it's a very 
complex situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's Richard Pryor, and he's mocking everybody. Yeah, he's mocking white people in particular. Yep. And uh, so, what do you do about that? Well, we actually thought and said, you know, I'm not sure this is cool. I don't like the idea of us laughing. We're laughing at Pryor, and he's just sort of rolling out the n-word like newspapers. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should go inside the somebody's room. Mm -hmm. So, so we were listening to Richard Pryor inside someone's dorm room one day, and I won't mention his name. Pat walks in the big. 370 pound sec football player or 300 pounds i can't remember six three he just covered the entire door he says hey man what are you all doing so we're listening to richard Pryor, and uh he said oh i love Pryor." so we sat down and we're all listening to it and i talked to him later i said you know frankly we're just a little worried one of the kids on the hall um i'll call him ken looked a little uh put out when we were listening to it in the hall right and i said frankly and he was black too mm. and i said Look, um, we were a little worried because I saw Ken look a little askance when he heard this. He said, oh, oh man, it's not. He's a preacher's kid. He didn't like the cussing. <laughs> <laughs> well, here again, you know, so you have two two African-American kids mm. on this hall, one of whom is totally fine with Richard Pryor and all the cussing. Another kid who doesn't like Richard Pryor so much, but not because he I'm sure he didn't like the N-word either, but it was mainly because mm. of the vulgarity. So. There's a way in which that kind of experience, which is now being just shut out in college campuses. We're, we're like effectively resegregating things. We're resegregating things. Yeah. When I'm sitting there talking to someone who's a real person mm -hmm. in real time, and he tells me about this other kid. He said, oh, he's a preacher's kid. He doesn't like the vulgarity. That stays with you. That stayed with me more than any class I had that freshman year. Those kinds of things are the most important uh, as, can be the most important, what we call the extracurricular things that happen mm. without supervision. Um, and those are the very things that have been, I think, removed from college life. And that hasn't been a coincidence, by the way. Right. Uh, this has been a, and we can talk about that at some point, but um, I've thought about this a lot, especially this idea of the extracurriculum, what Derek Bach, who's two-time president of Harvard, talked about just how important this is. And I read a passage in his book on higher education um, many years ago, and that it was in a footnote and that struck me. He said, you know, professors tend to overvalue what goes on in the curriculum, what goes on in the mm. classroom. Sure. What they've failed to realize is just how important the extracurriculum is. And what he didn't go on to say, but he should have emphasized was that the minute you try to structure that, the minute you try to formalize it and then basically turn it into a Sunday school, hmm. uh, then that's when things go south and that's where they've gone now. Sure. You yeah. know, it has to be a kind of open place where people have the chance to make mistakes. Um, when I was learning to drive a car, you know, uh, one of the things we did was went out into a big wide open parking lot where you could make all the mistakes you want and you wouldn't hurt anybody. Well, in a way, that's what I think a college campus outside the classroom should be. It's a place where we all have to be um, a little more forgiving of other people in part because people are living, you know, this is something I'll just add and then I'll shut up. But, mm. you know, a college campus is a, a residential college is a very unusual thing, especially given the segregated 
communities that many people, especially those, frankly, that go to college, come from is the one place, not only where you have, you know, people of different ethnicities and races in your classroom, but you actually get to live with them. Right. That conversation I had with those guys would never have happened in a classroom. No, of course not. Right. But it happens when you actually live next door, side by side. You see them going to the shower. You meet them in the bathroom. You help them get a key when they lock themselves out. All that kind of thing. That's the way to solve, uh, or that goes a long way to solving this problem of segregation. But we, I think we don't want to solve the problem, or at least some people don't. Correct. Yeah, I think that's there, there's money to be made in divisiveness. There's no question about that. Um, there is. Yeah. And it's it well, all everything you just said, including the experience, reminds me of a phrase I once heard, uh, which is it's hard to hate up close. Um, yes, it wasn't. So here's a good example of that it wasn't policies or arguments from the left or libertarians uh, that led to marriage equality. Sullivan's writing was standing. I think that did <clears throat> have it, it was interesting to see somebody who leaned conservative make such a compelling argument. I think that may have had something to do with it. But for the most part, it was when people began to realize that their friends and family were gay. That's and, right. and I'm sure there were plenty of <laughs> uh, awkward and emotional family gatherings and not all of them ended well. Like I'm sure there's yeah. plenty of heartbreak there. But when people begin to realize that their neighbor is exactly like them, except for you know, a couple of key features. And it's like, oh, okay, well, you still go to work every morning. You still <laughs> lose your keys and need help sometime and, and blah, right. blah, blah. And, you know, human beings are just by nature community focused. We know that yes. we need each other. We, whether people will admit it or not, they know that they need each other. It's why we started forming communities, what, 40,000 yes. 40, years ago. So maybe it's important. And this is back to the, the question I asked. If you're an average person who's not a manager uh, of something or not in a, uh, in a formal leadership role, maybe it's important for you as a non-leader to seek out those difficult and complex situations where you can yeah. and, yes. and, and find a way to thrive in them and find a way to encourage other people to do the same because nobody can stop you from doing that. Nobody can stop you yeah. from making yourself a better and more resilient person. Yes. And I think also, you know, seek out difficulty. Um, you know, it helps to remember and again, it's easier for me maybe because I don't I don't have an idea of the afterlife. I'm perfectly respectful of those who do. Mm -hmm. But I think this is your one shot. What are the chances on my deathbed that I'm going to regret putting myself in difficult situations? I think most everybody will regret playing it safe. Yep. I, I've said that since, since the first time I went to university and, and the first of my degrees. People, yeah. no, nobody regrets the things they did. They regret the things they didn't do. Almost always yes. is the case. Yes. Um, so here's the final question in that line. <clears throat> yeah. And this is something that I think you'll be able to answer really well since you talk to young people a lot. But what advice do you have for those young teenagers, people who are in middle or high school, uh, maybe even coming into a university situation who know that something's wrong? They feel they they, they expect to get something out of this process, but they know they're not getting it right. Uh, yeah. They get into situations where they're on. And I've been in those situations before when I was younger, I felt unprepared to be there uh, because maybe I was taught. So I grew up in a super religious family. Maybe I was taught that that other person that I'm talking to is wrong. And that's the standard instead of the merits of our individual arguments being the standard. Right. Uh, yeah. 
what do you say to those people who are being challenged? How can they improve their own position uh, since they're in a subordinate position now? And more importantly, how can they become leaders and improve not just themselves and the conditions for themselves, but those around them as well? I think probably uh, to a young person, um, it's very hard to give advice. But what I would say is, uh, and I've told uh, students this too, you're on a very, very long journey. You may not realize it, but, um, and I've, I've often told them, and they're, they're always shocked, and I, I laugh at their shock. I tell them, and I've said this to my students, I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. Mm. Uh, I know people are constantly telling you as a young person, that you're living the best years of your life. I said, do not believe that. That's definitely not true. (laughs) (laughs) And and they all nod in agreement. I said, look, it was the most difficult time. You didn't know who you were. Mm. You didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know what the future, miserable. You didn't have any uh, uh, financial ability to do any of the stuff you wanted to do either. I mean, if high school and college should not be the best years of your life, maybe formative, most formative, but definitely not the best. That's right. So um, more than anything else, and again, advice is of this kind is very hard to give. The first thing I'll say was go back to what you said, go toward difficulty. Hmm. If there's something you find yourself not wanting to do because you're going to feel, Oh, I'll look out of place. Cause I've never done this before. Hmm. It's every, is my, I have this tendency a lot. I don't want to do it cause I don't want to look like an amateur go toward that. That's the first thing. Second thing, remember that. Um, and again, this, this, this always sounds like, uh, you know, cliches. The learning curve on all this stuff is uh, huge. It's steep and it takes a long time. So, and I've, I've said this directly to, to students. Um, when you're at the age of 20, you need to be thinking about what your 30 year old self is going to say to you. Mm. That seems to resonate with them. It resonates with me. When you look back at the age of 30, what are you likely to say? to yourself. If you keep asking that question and keep putting that 30 year old self, you know, in front of you, uh, that's the best advice I can give. Because, you know, one of the things that does is it takes the authority figure out of the equation. Right. Right. Because everybody objects to authority figures. It says, I'm going to let you be the judge of what you think the best thing for you to do is not from the position of the person you are now, but mm. from the position of somebody who's 30, who may want to settle down and have a family, um, who may want to uh, pursue a job in something that maybe seemed out of reach. It seems almost impossible to do some of these things in two years, but can you do them in 10, mm. right? So I think there's a tendency for kids, and I totally understand it, because I was this way, to imagine that they have to make a decision at the age of 21, and that's going to be the first cut in the gem that will determine what it will look like, right? But you have to remember that, you know, I think it was actually, it's surprising maybe, but I think it was William Buckley who said, as long as you know what you want to be, by the time you're 35, you're good. (laughs) Now, he wasn't, of course, counseling a life of just drifting. Sure, I know. 
but expose yourself to as many new things as possible. Mm -hmm. Try as many things. And, you know, when I'm talking to, to people in college, I always want to emphasize doing things other that don't have to do with the intellect necessarily. Mm -hmm. That is work with your hands. If you get a chance to do a job in uh, auto repair, take that job. Mm -hmm. All those things can work into the sort of uh, living person. I say, and when I say, by the way, doesn't involve the intellect, all these things are related. Uh, things that you do, things that you learn about in, um, in a class or from your father or mother about how to repair cars, mm. that becomes a kind of fund for metaphor, for analogy, for thinking about other things. So there's really nothing that's wasted. And uh, I also say, you know, and this is something I especially want to say to college students because so many of them, and I get this too, um, have a kind of, if not conscious, unconscious fear of working with their hands and a disdain for, you know, I have to say, the blue collar worker. Sure. And I tell them, look, you have to remember that's a satisfying, that can be a very satisfying and important life mm -hmm. uh, to, to live. I have a friend who's a lawyer, a very close friend. He said, what I'd really love to do is work with my hands three days a week and lawyer two days a week. Because sure, yeah. my God, doing this five days a week, <laughs> 54 weeks a year is murder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's it, it it it's in line with uh, just how we've progressed as society as well, right? So we used to go outdoors because we had to. Now we're indoors yeah. and we go outdoors because we want to. It's a leisure activity to do yeah. to, to go camping, for example, which we used to do just to be able to survive. It's pretty funny yeah. that we go back to those survivalist things when just for for leisure at this point in our lives. Um, yes. One of the things you said about challenging yourself not just in difficult situations i guess but to try to you know do new things be a polymath or a generalist as james altisher likes to say uh it's you know based epictetus talked about this in the second century you know like 1800 years ago a little bit over 1800 years yes. ago if you want to improve you need to be okay with people thinking you're an idiot you know what i mean and yes, maybe even right. maybe even thinking you're an idiot yourself right you have to be able to do that and yeah to that point that, as you said, the learning curve is huge and long. And yes. so maybe you should be prepared for your own failure. And maybe you should be prepared to handle the failure of others with some grace instead of dancing on people's yes. graves when they fail. Uh, I think that's a really important thing. And I also think it's really important what you said about removing the authority figure from the equation. Um, <clears throat> so from my perspective, what happens there when you when you imagine yourself in the future and how you might react to or behave in that current situation, what you're doing is, is leaning on ethics and principles that are timeless instead of you're reassigning authority from a person that you might look up to like a political figure or a parent or somebody else who is completely fallible to a principle, which is timeless. That's a very yes. important realignment of your standard in my opinion. Yeah. No, I think that's, um, I think that's right. Um, oh, you, something you said, uh, struck a chord and I've just, I think I've just, um, I've just lost what it was. Um, was it in that latest uh, comment? 
learning curves are huge. Be prepared for your failure and others' failures are epictetus. Sometimes you're going to fail or be thought an idiot. Oh, yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's also good to, I mean, it's funny to think about this, but um, to practice at being, get used to being disliked. Mm. Okay. (laughs) That's a very important thing. Or get used to being on the outside of a circle. Very important because in, in some ways, my advice to people is get used to being alone. I've seen so many people make mistakes. Uh, I've made a few of myself because I wasn't comfortable being alone. I don't mean just uh, just alone personally, but also alone on the side of an issue. Now, again, one doesn't want to be dogmatic. One doesn't want to be stuck in one's ways. There are all sorts of ways of describing this, right? Some, some good, some bad. We say someone is stubborn or one is principled, depending on how you want to spin it, right? Mm. Uh, but in general, I think it's good practice uh, to be in a crowd of people and be willing. Again, one doesn't want to do this just for the hell of it, <laughs> yeah. but to be willing to say, no, I disagree with a hundred of you here. Mm. I think you're all wrong. Right. No, I think, uh, uh, yeah, social pressure and shame and stuff like that is a really important part of molding good social behavior, but it can't apply to ideas. Ideas yeah. should either survive or disappear based on their merit, not on the mob. That's right. Right. Well, and, the, and I think, you know, one of the things that Mill, John Stuart Mill mm. had in common with Milton in both of their treatises on, on, uh, on liberty and mm. freedom of speech is the idea, and again, it's a very counterintuitive one, if one person is saying something that the crowd disagrees with, you better pay special attention to that person mm. because that person has sacrificed an enormous amount to tell you something. <laughs> so now this person may be crazy. Correct. But you also have to remember, uh, you know, what's been called the argument against interest. Everything goes against him or her speaking up. Mm. Every fiber in his social being says no to that. So if, they are willing to go against that very strong instinct. Maybe you should give them the chance to say what's on their minds. Hmm. I think that's very important, not only for people who are in a crowd, but for the person who is, who is outside the crowd. Um, so we all have to, you know, when you think about it, all the great advances typically have not come from, from groups. They've come from individuals. Correct. Yeah. And it goes back to a point we were, you know, making, making earlier, um, sort of the romantic idea of the single individual leading culture, leading his society or her society into the future and making that society progress. It very often starts with one person. It's however, an obligation, two obligations. One, the people around that person to pay attention, to Mm. listen, to not just do a quick vote count and decide who's wrong on the basis of how many votes there are. There's also an obligation on that person, this revolutionary, to make arguments, right, to go back Mm -hmm. to something else. Those arguments may not persuade initially, but you've got to build up a consensus. And if you don't have a consensus and you try to impose it anyway, well, then that's where tyrants are born. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, what this says is there's no getting around conflict. Uh, conflict is an absolute necessity of human life, is an absolute necessity of progress. When you don't have conflict, what you have are prisons and uh, barbed wire fences and body bags. That's how you get rid of conflict. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that's what Stalin's. Stalin had this, you know, this idea that he could uh, sort of erase conflict by liquidating it. And uh, so that's where it ultimately leads. Of course, I'm not suggesting that everybody who does this is a Stalin in the making. But I'm saying it's good to look down the road and see where this would lead if we'd let it go. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that is a good point. And the other point you made um, <clears throat> about influence, it's not enough to just be correct. Like you still have to do the work. It's not enough to like, I don't know how much time uh, Stephen Hawking spent convincing people that black holes were real and being, yeah. being laughed out of quite a few places uh, ulti yes. ultimately vindicated. And that's something that, you know, it, it's something we talk about in sports a lot. There are a lot of modern athletes <clears throat> just have no constitution, right. But still want the respect. What we respect about people who go through hard times and achieve greatness isn't just the achievement. It's everything they overcame. It's the resilience that we truly respect. Right. Because yes. re there's nothing more. Uh, I think, over success or anything else, I don't think there's anything more uh, inspiring to human beings than resilience because it's, yes. it's the probably the most ubiquitous thing in life will be struggle. Yes. Well, and one of the problems is we only see typically the end result. Mm. We don't see where it came from. You know, yep. we only see the genius at the end of the road. We don't see the road. Right. Yeah. I, it's a funny thing. Speaking of Texas, uh, George Strait, you know that. Mm -hmm. You know George Strait. Everybody sure. knows George Strait here. <laughs> Everybody knows George Strait. Well, you know, I happened to see a little biography of his on YouTube pop up, and I said, that'd be interesting. So I looked at it, and sure enough, you know, like everybody else, <laughs> you know, man, nobody sees the decades of struggle uh, of, of just living hand to mouth, of having no success whatsoever. And so we have this we live in this illusion i think for the most part we see people flash up out of nowhere and we assume it's going to come uh that easily we don't see the long and we also don't see by the way the long roads of people who never make it right that could be very discouraging mm -hmm. right um but uh but but the people who do the people who were laughed at i mean think about the guy who i don't know his name but back in I don't know how old you are, Dan, but back in my my day when I was growing up, mm. there were lots of sort of standard tropes in television. There was the hammock, the banana peel. Right, yeah. Um, there was the the boss coming over to dinner, right? And if mm -hmm. everything didn't go well, this was going to put his job in jeopardy. Right. Well, the other thing was, of course, the ulcer, mm. right? And the ulcer came from stress. Well, so everybody thought that stress caused ulcers. No, it turns out it's H. pylori that causes ulcers, right? <laughs> That's right. And the guy who, the guy who discovered that, was laughed at for a decade. Mm. And um, I think he gave himself this uh, this actual. Is it a virus or bacteria? I don't know. Uh, I think uh, it's a bacteria. He gave itself. He gave it to himself. Caused Re repeatedly, an ulcer. repeatedly gave it to himself. Yep. That's right. That's right. So. Um, you know, it takes this kind of thing. A lot of people don't have, pardon the pun, the stomach for that. That is, they don't have the constitution um, 
to live through it. That's why I say it sounds funny, but again, practice. Um, well, being in the military, you know about this, mm. um, you know, or if you're a surgeon, the first time you cut open a body, uh, that's got to be pretty traumatic. Mm. The more I you do it, the so. less, the less traumatic it is. And, sure. and I'm sure you know that from the military. We don't we, we recognize that in physical activities, mm. I think, pretty easily. We don't recognize it in in what we call mental activities. We sure. don't recognize that it takes practice to be the outsider. It takes practice to be willing to stand for your principles, regardless of what other people say. It sure. takes practice to be going around and having dirty looks thrown in your, mm-hmm. your direction. Sure. And you build up a muscle. Mm-hmm. It's like everything else, you know. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing uh, to do. I mean, there's no way to experience that without experiencing it. You know what I mean? There's knowing, yes. knowing what it feels like to have made a good argument, to have that argument rejected and persevere through that. Re- like you're, I, I always tell people that <clears throat> uh, if you think you're right, you should check your work first and, instead of checking the other person's argument. Like immediately yeah. check your own work first. Um, yes. uh, but, you know, be prepared to defend it and know what it feels like to go through that process. And then I, I think just as importantly, and it's something that, uh, again, this is another thing that we can't do anymore. Uh, know what it feels like to be vindicated or proven right and proceed with grace. So just like a, a good manager, if there's a failure, they say we like we're going to fix this if their successes, yes. they give credit to their subordinates for the success in the same way when you're in an argument and you are proven wrong, be humble and take in that new information. And when you're proven right, you say, you don't, you don't spike the football. You say, all right, on to the next. Now, what can we learn from that? Like, yes. you, like you, what you said about this actually does make sense. If you think about it this way, like move the yes. conversation forward. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and that, that, that last thing you said, um, well, not spiking the football, and in fact saying, I'm going to give you some points here, too, mm. by pointing out I understand completely where you're coming from. Uh, I mean, just take an example. Um, very often, this goes back to an earlier part of the conversation. Um, actually, I, I bring this up when I'm teaching Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. He has this long chapter on misunderstood words. Mm. I don't know if you ever read that book. I think you'd probably like it. Mm. Um, and it chimes with a point that has, he's talking mostly about a relationship between a man and a woman. But it actually has bearing on just any relationship with another human being. Very often people are using the same words, but they're talking about entirely different experiences. Mm. And an example of this is um, when I was growing up in rural Kentucky, the police were people who you called um, when you needed assistance, right? So if somebody was breaking into your house, right. then they would. So, and you knew these people. There was a guy named Bernie in my hometown who uh, <laughs> was uh, sort of ambling around and sat in his car a lot of the day, but he was a good guy. Everybody knew him, so it was no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so when if I'm talking about somebody else at, you know, early at, at, when I was 18 or 19 or 20 about the police. Um, and I was talking to say, somebody who was black and lived in an inner city. And by the way, let me just add here, not everybody, not even the majority of black people who live in cities think the police are, are bad. So I just want right. to 
that out there. But if I'm in an argument with somebody, say about the police, and they have had a different experience, very often the argument about policing is, is we're using the same word, but for him it's a totally different experience of what a policeman right. is, right? So basically you're at loggerheads only because you're using the same word, but you're talking about two entirely mm. different things. So, and again, this is this is a long. Um, it's taken a lot of a lot of sort of mistakes to learn this. Very often, you can get just people to say, "What do you mean when you say, or tell me about your experience with this?" And then you understand when they say the word "police," they they're talking about something something right. utterly different. Yeah, Jordan Peterson talks about that a lot in the relationship counseling he did when he was still an active counselor about uh, if if the two people in a relationship are disagreeing on something, he will not move on the com move on from that part of the conversation until each party can explain what the other person is saying to the other person's satisfaction. Oh, that's, that's right. That's brilliant. There's a, yeah. there's a word for it in, in philosophy, but I can't remember what it is uh, or a phrase for it rather. But yeah, I think it, it, that's you, that is a very common problem in any sort of debate, particularly when you're talking about people from different uh, backgrounds and cultures, and it never gets solved unless you're willing to have that conversation. That's right. Um, well, yeah. I was thinking about, um, I've been thinking about this phrase, white privilege, uh, a lot, mm -hmm. you know. And I think one of the reasons I react to it the way I do is because when I think of white privilege, I grew up in a sort of, you know, well, a strange environment in, in my particular home life was odd. Um, but in a rural part of Kentucky, we weren't wealthy mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Had to worry about paying the phone bills, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Got it cut off a couple of times. But I was, you know, never wanting for food or anything, right. obviously. But, you know, on my bus route, there were kids uh, who 19, in 1969, 1970 didn't have indoor toilets. Mm -hmm on my bus route they got onto the bus and you could smell them because everything that was cooked in that little shack mm. was now on their clothing and they didn't have washers and they didn't have dryers so when people talk to me about white privilege i think about those kids i think mm. about the kids in appalachia that i you know i my grandparents were in appalachia so we'd go up there every summer and I said, what in God's name are you talking about? This is what the conversation I'm having with my, mm -hmm. with myself. Not to say that it doesn't exist, but there's no such thing as white privilege. I understand that. But it's, it's in part because very often the people, I think, that are making this argument, and let's just confine it to, say, what are commonly referred to as the bicoastal elites. Uh, <laughs> they're thinking about all the people down at the... Uh, down at the restaurant or the country club sure. or wherever. So that's their picture of, of the, of white privilege. They have no consideration for the 25 million people in Appalachia, not all of whom are poor, by the way, right. but live lives that they have no idea about. And mm. by the way, don't seem to be, have any curiosity about. And this is where, you know, the, the really, the, the deep connections between, you know, the sort of, I'll call them the underclass on both the white and, both the whites and the blacks, they have so much more in common than separates them. And I, I frankly, I think, you know, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think that's one of the concerns is that if these people ever realize just how much they have in common, we're beginning to see a little bit of that now, I think, I hope yeah. politically, 
um, than the than the overlords of um, of the political culture that we have now are will be in deep trouble. Right. There's a there's an old story. I can't remember who exactly it's from, um, but it's a uh, Roman senator or prefect, maybe talking to somebody from whom they had just purchased slaves. Right. So when the yeah. slaves are delivered, they're usually tagged with a collar around their neck or a PhD or something like that. And then yeah. when they arrived in Rome, they would receive a brand, but they would remove the external stuff. And yeah. the the slave the slave seller to, uh, asked asked the Roman senator why why would you do that? And he said, "Well, if we <laughs> if we tagged all of them, right, they would realize how many more of them there are than there are of us, oh, oh, and that wow. would be then then they would revolt. Like so, they th this is not like." You, Again, Hanlon's razor, there's no need to imply malice when incompetence will suffice. But I will say yes. from the patrician class, no matter what country it's in, no matter what time period it's in, that psychology remains the same, whether it's the Romans keeping slaves, whether it's uh, middle, uh, middle English not letting people learn how to read so they can control their access to the church yes. or whatever it is, right? It's been going on since human beings have existed, and it's not unique to America or Western culture in general. It's, it's happened every single place on Earth, anywhere there have been humans who want to subjugate other humans. Yes. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. Realize that. I always tell people, yes. if somebody's trying to divide you, they are trying to conquer you. That's where the phrase comes from. Re That's right. Reject that divisiveness and go to that person that they're telling you to hate and have a conversation with them. And I guarantee right. you that conversation will not end the way you think it would. That's um, absolutely right. I appreciate you coming yeah. today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the, the audience before we get out of here? Uh, no, it was great. Very enjoyable conversation, Dan. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a great time. And tell everybody where they can find you. Well, um, the video series is um, that I did with Peter uh, Bogosian is um, – called uh, Why Colleges Are Becoming Cults, mm. and it's on YouTube. There are individual videos, but the big video that's edited is about 80 minutes long. And uh, it's something we put together starting last summer, and uh, we've we put a lot of work into it, and uh, I think it's okay. I think it's pretty good. Good, yeah. You guys check it out and uh, as, as well. You, uh, you publish on Peter's Substack from time to time as well, I believe. Um, yes, I have, and... Um, I published something and that's probably relevant to, to education and various other things. There's an essay in um, the American scholar called um, low definition in higher education. Okay. And I published a couple of things in Quillette on, on higher education okay. uh, recently. So if you just Google my name uh, and Quillette or American scholar, you can find those, those writings that having primarily to do with uh, education and culture. Outstanding. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate your time today. Um, thank and, you, Dan. Yes, sir. And I appreciate all of you for watching. This has been Citizen.